0: That will be next week. We're really excited about that, okay? Last thing is turn your Bibles to Titus chapter 1, starting in verse 10. We're going to have some people coming down the aisles with Bibles, and we want you to put your hands up high if you need one to follow along. It's really important for us to, to flip through an actual Bible. Um, this way we'll have an understanding of, hey, how do we navigate this as soon as we leave, okay? And so turn to Titus. It's towards the end of your Bibles in chapter 1, starting in verse 10, and let me give you some context and background. So we're in week three of this series. Now, uh, what's going on? 35,000 foot levels. Essentially, the church is exploding across Europe and Asia. Churches are being planted all over the place. And Paul, who's one of the main uh, evangelists and church planners, is writing these letters back to churches to say, hey, this is some things you guys need to think about, right? Maybe here's some teaching that's not right that we need to fix. Here's what you need to do so that the church maintains its mission in wherever that place is. And so this letter is to one of his disciples, Titus, to say, hey, man, there's some things going on there, and in order for us to be a healthy mission, a healthy church, here's what we need to do. So last week, we talked about eldership and leadership and appointing healthy, godly, good elders over the church, and Paul encourages this, and it's very important. I want to share a story with you this week, because I just thought it was funny, and you guys engage better when we tell a story in the beginning. Um, so I was off, and this was—I told a story about this last week, but I was over at uh, uh, the Aquaplex working out, and I, I get out of there, and I always like to go in the jacuzzi, and you kind of sit there for 10 minutes and just soak, and it's, and it's great, right? And, and if you're ever in a jacuzzi with a bunch of people, a fun thing to do is just bring some vegetables and cut those up and just start putting them around in there. People really freak them out. Um, but anyway, so I'm sitting in the jacuzzi, and, and, and like I said last week, there's just—there's a good handful of of 70-plus-year-olds that just seem to be there at 6 in the morning. Like, that's the time 70-plus-year-olds work out, okay? Uh, And and so they show up there, and I'm sitting in the jacuzzi, and sure enough, a a gal from the church just happened to also be there that early in the morning and comes by me and comes by and says, Hey, loved what you said about elders. Been praying for you all week. That's great, you know? And at first, I was like, Can I not just work out? You know, and, and then secondly... We're sitting there for a little bit, and then this lady, who uh, her name was Catherine. She's a 72-year-old woman here in Flagstaff. Slight British accent says to me, she goes, excuse me? And I said, said, yes. She goes, "Um, you seem like a very nice young man, but you are not elderly. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. Elders as in a church elder. And she goes, yes, yes, yes but you are not elderly. And I said, I know, I get it, but it's different. So we had this long conversation. I like regurgitated a 40-minute sermon in the jacuzzi with this woman in like five minutes about what elders look like uh, in the church. And they do not have to be elderly. But then we got in this long discussion, and now I'm not sure why I'm telling you this, but we got in this long discussion just about, man, what the 50s were like. And that was just, that was brilliant. And so anyway, um, let's move on. What we're going to look at today, why were the elders so important? So so why Paul, in his first moment to tell Titus, hey man, okay, so this letter is going to be about the church. How do we make the church healthy? The first encouragement he gives was last week was, you need to appoint these elders, and I think it's because in verse 9 he says this, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And so today's sermon, for the next seven verses, it's essentially Paul saying, these are the false teachings that we're going to need elders and leaders leadership, and this is not just me, but across the church. We need elders and leaders to step up and rebuke false teaching, because there will be false teaching. There will be things that slip into the church that distort the gospel, and this cannot happen. We're going to find that as the gospel gets distorted, if there is a false gospel, there leads to false belief, and false belief leads to false hope. And this is prevalent not just in Crete in the first century, but this is prevalent in today's culture as well. So we'll spend some time talking about Crete. What exactly was Paul trying to address? But we're going to spend, I'd even say, more of our time saying, what does this mean for the church in 21st century America here in Flagstaff, Arizona? Because that's, right, boots on the ground when we leave. This is what we have to think through. How do we apply this reality, which I'm going to say is not all that different from the way it was in Crete in the first century, okay? So that's, that's our goal today. Um, We need to care about this at a significant level. If you're here and you're a Christian, you have to care about the integrity of the gospel. I think far too much. We live now in a culture that says do not judge, let people do their own thing, say their own thing, think their own thing. And I, and I agree to that at a certain level. But when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to the good news, when it comes to the only story that saves, when it comes to Jesus, the only Savior that has ever come that will redeem the world, we cannot compromise And we need to be a church. And I don't mean this redemption, I mean the church needs to be a people who protects and holds tightly to the integrity of the gospel. And if we let it slip, we need to, as we've said this letter does, course correct and say, okay, church, maybe we've slipped as a culture. Maybe, maybe as a church we, we haven't done it well over the last 30 to 50, I would even say maybe 2,000 years. We just kind of swayed a little bit. Maybe it's time we need to course correct And begin to be the people who hold the gospel to a higher integrity than we're allowing our culture to do it. Okay, That's my hope that we get out of this. So let's go. Verse 10. What are some of these problems? For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. Especially those of the circumcision party. And if that sounds crazy, we'll explain it. Don't worry. Verse 11. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Okay, so, so Paul is going to say, man, this, this is the context of what's going on. So in Crete, man, we, we, this, this is not an okay place. Right? This is not an okay place. Uh, a couple of quotes for you from some ancient historians, which I'm sure you guys have all read. One is Polybius, and he said this, It was impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than Crete. Cicero said moral principles are so divergent that the Cretans consider highway robbery honorable right? So you've got these guys on the outside, and they're looking at Crete, and then you've got a guy on the inside, their own prophet. Like, we're all beasts, liars, gluttons. That's who we are. And so that's the context that Paul is addressing. In the midst of this, you're going to see this group rise up called the Judaizers, right? The circumcision party. And I think what they're doing is they're trying to capitalize on the reality that Crete seems to be so lost, right? They're, they're crazy, and they're gluttonous, and they're so far from God. They have no morality, and so they come in with this gospel that says it's Jesus and Jewish law, right? So, okay, you, you want to believe in Jesus, that he's the Savior of the world. Great, we believe that too, but you also need to abide by Jewish law. Like, you, you can't leave behind the law, and so circumcision was a big part of this. And so hence the circumcision party, the Judaizers were saying, Hey, in order, okay, listen, Gentile, you uncircumcised, if if you want to be a real Christian, yes, believe in Jesus, but also you need to be circumcised. And so many were like, That's not happening. And we're gonna address today that it didn't need to happen, because the gospel is far more comprehensive and creates rather and fulfills. The law in a way where now it does not pertain to us, but I will clarify that in a bit more. So this is the context, right? So when he says there are people, there are false teachers being raised up. There are people that are adding to the gospel. It's a Jesus and situation. So Jesus by himself, the gospel. Jesus lived the perfect life, right? He was born to a virgin, lives perfectly, sinless goes to a cross later on in life after this three-year period of incredible ministry, dies on that cross and takes the sins of the world upon his shoulders, goes into a tomb but arises out of it, and three days later he's not there, right? He's risen from the dead. The gospel, the story that saves, the true story of the world. Okay, This is the gospel that's being distorted And so Paul's like, okay, here's one of the primary opponents that you need to watch out for. And it's a Jesus and type of thing. Jesus and the law will save you. Jesus by himself is not enough. We'll talk about our own Jesus ands here in just a moment. Now, I think in the midst of all this, um, we begin to wonder, well, who can we trust then? When we start thinking through, man, what, what teachers do we believe in? Because this is pervasive across culture, that it's Jesus and, or just be a good person, or whatever it may look like. So for them, uh, I think they were looking at the wrong things as a church. And Paul's come and say, here are the right things to look at in order to determine, hey, is this someone I should follow and listen to? Is this a true teaching or a false teaching? I think first... We need to care, or they needed to care. Both of us need to care less about success and ability, okay? Success and ability can be faked all day. Success does not denote God, okay? You you can show up to all sorts of things, and it would be very successful, but that does not mean it's something you should be a part of. If we just go to popular media, right? Sauron, very successful. Vader, successful, Walking Dead fans, Negan, very successful, okay? All of them people you don't follow. You look throughout history, some of the great dictators across the world. You look at Hitler, successful in his mission. You look at Mussolini. You look at Stalin. You look at these figures throughout history where if we judge, yeah, this is someone, this is a message, this is a thing I should be behind. If you go off just success, you're in trouble. You know the reality is? I think all day... Every day here in our society, we go off success. Man, they're, they're doing it right because they're bigger, right? Well, they're making the most money. We, we bring into to the church context. Well, their church is larger, so they're doing it right. They deserve to write the books because their church is bigger than the other church. So seriously, they must be doing something correct. We must be doing something wrong. Success is not a way that we judge whether or not this is something from God and whether or not we should follow it. The second one is Ability. Listen, a lot of people are very good at what they do, but that does not mean that they should be people you follow. That can be trickery all day. Listen, Satan is very good at what he does, yet yeah, we do not follow him. Okay. Success and ability can be deceptive, and so I think Paul in the text is going to give us three other things that we should, we necessarily have to look at when we say, okay, man, who do I get behind them? And when we live in a culture today where there are a litany of options of what you believe in, how do you decide? And I think you need to look at when it comes to teachers, these three things, authority, content, and character. See, the authority that you had in the Judaizers was coming from themselves, right? They, they were giving themselves this authority. Now, they're basing it off of Old Testament Scripture, but it wasn't given by Christ, right? In fact, what they were saying contradicts everything that Jesus says. And so he comes, they come in, they say, listen, our authority, it's, it, it, you just have to believe us. They, they have no other authority but what they've given themselves. And if you look around, and that's who you're looking to follow, and you say, man, well, who else has vouched for them, Right, for, for this teacher, who else is saying, yeah, yeah, that's good, right? Uh, that, that lines up, and do you agree with those other teachers as well, or do they not believe that this guy is all that good? And I think the only way you know that is if you ask questions. Too often, I think, we jump onto the internet, and, uh, and we read a blog, And we're like, hey, man, this is just truth because Stephen Jones wrote it in Omaha, Nebraska, right? Because he's an authority now because he's on the internet, right? And and we're like, well, wait a minute. Who is this guy? What does he know? Do you have any idea of his background? Who vouches for him? What authority does he write the things he writes for? And yet we buy hook, line, and sinker, I think, because it makes us feel better. Maybe because it aligns more with what we want to be true, not necessarily what is true. So authority is very important. The second one is content, right? Content. Does what they say match up with what is true? Now, for the church, we have this incredible opportunity. We have this thing called the Bible where we can go back and we can open it up and say, all right, man, what, this is truth, right? We, we, can co- we have this, this litmus test for things in this world to say, well, does this line up with Scripture, Does the content match? And so not just do they have authority, but is what they're saying, can we come back and trace and say, yeah, you know what, that's biblical, that's good. Then, okay, then give them a little more credence in what they teach. You see, for the Cretans at the time, and they're buying into these false teachers where the content doesn't match up with what they know to be true. And so there's this disconnect. Now, one of my favorite movies growing up and, and I'm sure it's true for many of you, is the movie Bloodsport. Uh, has anyone ever seen that? Okay, I didn't think so. Yeah, it's not good. Um, but Jean-Claude Van Damme is the star, okay? Randy likes it good. Uh, the muscles from Brussels, right? I mean, this dude is just the jam, and it was like a hero of mine growing up. So in this movie, he, he competes, and it's based actually on the true life of this guy, Frank Dukes, okay? But he goes to this tournament, and uh, I actually can't remember what it was. It was somewhere. Where? Yeah, but do you know where it was? Oh, Come on, man. Just don't talk then. Just, <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Um, and so he goes to this kuma, kumite, this, this tournament. And uh, in order to get in, right, there, they, they go, he goes to sign up. And they say, well, who, who is your shidoshi? Right? Who is your master? Who is your trainer? And he says, it's Senzo Tanaka, which I know, hush over the crowd, right? So Senzo Tanaka is my shidoshi. And he goes, there's no way he's your shidoshi. And he says, if he is, you need to prove it. And so if you, in order to prove it to this, you need to do the dim mach, Okay, And the mock is the touch of death. Okay? And so what they do is they bring him over to this conveniently already pre-built wall of bricks. Okay? And uh, where the mock will take place. And on the bottom, they say, there is one brick on the bottom of all of these bricks. And you need to hit the top of this thing and break only the bottom brick. Okay? And so that would be the mock. And so Frank Dukes steps up to it. You know, he'll... Thingy heel hit or palm hit? Yep, heels down here. Um, <laughs> palm hit, and sure enough, the, the brick smashes. Now you're probably thinking, why and why why are you telling the story? Um, in order for him to get in, name dropping wasn't enough. Right? He had to back up the name drop with the content of his message. In other words, what do you actually know anything about? The shidoshi. Do you know anything about the master? Can you, can you live like the master lives? Does your content match the authority? And so listen, there, all day, every day across our country, we drop Jesus like it's crazy, right? So 80% of our nation, Jesus, yeah, he's the guy. I guess I'm a Christian. The content, though, seems to be lacking. Uh, we, we name drop Jesus in the church. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's my guy. But you don't know anything about him. He hasn't trained you. He doesn't know you. Does the content match, does the content match the authority? And I mean, as I begin to think about that, it's really sitting in kind of my life. And, and does, this, does this line up? I mean, I, I name drop Christ, it is my life marked by the things that He's taught me. It should be. It should be. Okay, so, those are the first two authority and content. And the last one is character, right? So, Paul is just going to town on the character of this group of the Judaizers, of the circumcision group, of, of all the false teachers. They, listen, they're just out there for their own shameful gain, they deceive to achieve their own purposes. And so inside, they are just wicked. They are messed up. We've already heard everything that was said about them by uh, other historians and prophets. And so notice what, what, what Paul is intentionally doing is he's painting a picture of these false teachers, and he's juxtaposing, contrasting them with what we just saw last week, which is an exhaustive list of what it looks like to be a leader in the church. And saying, listen, you've got this option of someone who, who, who loves the scriptures, loves the Bible, is, is mannered well, cares for his family, is respectable, etc., etc. And then you have this group of false teachers who are deceptive and ignorant and arrogant and are trying to deceive you and are not close to what the scriptures tell us. And yet we fall this direction over and over and over again. And I think many of us would sit here today and we'd say, well, when do I do that? Like, when, when do I believe the false teacher? And honestly, it's every time you sin. And it's every time I sin. It's every time, functionally, hear me. When you decide this way is better, when you say, I'm going to do my own thing, I know the Bible says this, I know God wants this, but I will go this direction, you're buying into a false teaching. You're buying into a false teacher. You're saying you're right and God is wrong. Just functionally, this is the reality. And so I think we can read this text, and surely I wanted to, and say, man, that's just Crete. They were crazy. This wouldn't happen to us. And then it took me about four seconds to realize the own depravity of my heart that I oftentimes stand on this side instead of this side. Now, praise God for the gospel, which we get to celebrate in just a moment. But man, if we start trying to navigate, okay, church, if we want to course correct, if we want to see that the gospel holds the integrity that it's supposed to, right, that the gospel is not a false teaching leading to false belief, leading to false hope, but just the opposite, a true gospel, a true belief leading to a true hope. And if that is a desire for the church, and it must be, it was for Paul saying, listen, don't miss this. Don't allow the gospel to be lost in the midst of all the other teachings. Church today in America in the 21st century, do not allow the gospel to be lost amidst all the teaching. Especially, hear me, for you students. Because I think you're hearing it more than the average adult is hearing it. You're going to a university, and you've got teacher after teacher after teacher. You've got student after student after student. And they're saying, ah, no, it's this. and, and No, it's, it's, yeah, a little bit of that, but it's a little bit of this. And, and, and you're dabbling in all these different worldviews. And then most of them are saying, well, all of them are okay, and all of them are equally true, and, and et cetera, et cetera. And all it does every time one of those lies is bought into, it is a distortion of the gospel. And the church is needing to step in. And protect and care for the gospel story. For the sake of the world. To be protectors of this good news. Okay? So now what do we do with false teachers? 11a says they must be silenced. On into 13 says, Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths. And the commands of the people who turn away from truth. And so what do we do with the false teachers? So, okay, if this is true, if this exists, right? If we're finally like, okay, we're indicted today. I buy into this system. There's people teaching this system all over the place. And it's the church's role to try and course correct, not just for the sake of our individual souls and individual lives, but for the sake of our city and world. If this is all true, well, what do we do with those false teachers? And it says that they must be silenced. It says that they must be silenced, which I think is a kind of a fearful thing for us. Because, again, we live in a culture that says, just don't judge. Let, let, let's said what's said. Like, let, don't, don't engage. Just let them do their own thing. And the more we allow that, the more our culture has a view of the gospel which is not the gospel. I can't tell you how often Anthony, myself, Drew, the rest of the staff, we sit down and we have meetings with people in this room, people outside this room. And I begin to say, I just start off oftentimes with this, what is the gospel to you? And man, the answers I get are across, I mean, just across the widest spectrum, guys. And it always seems to be kind of this Jesus plus some other stuff. And that is not the gospel. So what do we do? We silence these things. How? How do we silence them? By rebuke, okay? By rebuke, by that's wrong, okay? Listen, you've all done this, right? Like, you've been in an argument. If you're married, unless you're amazing, right? You've been in an argument with your spouse at some point. We're like, I'm right and you're wrong, okay? Parents to kids, that's just always true. You're wrong and I'm right, right? Along down the online with friends, roommates, etc. You've done this before. You're wrong. It's not difficult. Rebuke the false teaching. When you hear it, call it out. Because to leave it and let it be, maybe, yeah, maybe you're in a good place where you understand the gospel, right? Maybe I'm in a good place. Maybe I'm sitting in a, in a coffee shop, maybe I'm sitting in a jacuzzi next week at, at the aquaplex, and I begin to overhear false understandings, false stories. About the gospel, And I could sit there and be completely fine in and of myself. Because I think I know. I mean, I think I know the gospel. And so even, I might notice that that's not right. And I could sit there peacefully, let them do their thing, and just be okay. But then I know they're going to take that message, and they're going to continue to tell the rest of the people that they know. And they're going to have more conversations like this as they go around with their friends, as they should, as we just talk about things that we think we know. In that moment, I have lost, I have missed an opportunity to correct a false understanding of the greatest story in the world. It might not affect me in the moment, but it will surely affect the people they go and tell. And it surely affects them right in that moment. We have a responsibility as the people of God to remind the culture of the story of God. That it would not be distorted or deceived and that people would know. Okay, Now we've done a poor job at this. We've done a poor job of this, and I think one of the big reasons is for the last 30 to 40 years, we've tried to go to politicians instead of people. Okay? And, and, and I think we've tried to legislate the gospel instead of preach the gospel. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with trying to create a moral society and advocate for laws that reflect the kingdom of God. But I think for a while, it became our only focus. And I think we stopped going to people we started started going to the voting booth. And the church stopped learning what it meant to engage with culture. And so now culture sped ahead and they went 100 miles an hour and they engaged in all of these issues and the church stayed over here and hoped, man, we could figure something out at this level that then would trickle down and fix everything so we don't have to get dirty. We stopped going to people And so many of us didn't even realize that this story is that messed up out there. The the church is completely lost. That there's a different gospel that's being preached outside of here. And it's not sending people to heaven. And it's not redeeming lost souls. And it's not fixing broken marriages. And it's not saving orphans. It's not caring for widows. It is a false gospel and we've let it get there. It was our job to protect it, and we've let it become something different. But there's still time. There's still time for the church to course correct, to fix ourselves, but we have to acknowledge our own cultural myths, the own things that we struggle with today, pervasive in the church that will keep, uh, keep us from engaging at the level we should. And the Jesus and for us is not just Jesus and Jewish law specifically. It's Jesus and good works. It's Jesus and legalism. It's Jesus and prove yourself. So we've created this gospel that says, all right, man, like, yeah, it's Jesus. I'm totally justified in Jesus, but I'm actually totally justified in the fact that I show up to church every Sunday. And and I'm actually justified in the fact that everyone sitting next to me thinks I'm a better Christian than I am. And, And we're justified in the fact that people like you and you're justified in the fact that you have a certain status, and you're justified in the fact that on and on and on, whatever the other things we add to Christ to feel secure in the moment, hear me. If everything was taken away from you, I want you to think of everything in your life right now. Your status, your bank account, your assets, your relationships, your church, literally every single thing in your life gone. Nothing changes about your status before God. Your justification is secure in Him, and that is all. If this is true, if you are fully justified in Christ, just think of the outworking of this. You never need argue or fight with anyone ever again. Why? What's the point of fighting and trying to prove you're right? Proving you right is a basis of trying to justify yourself. If you're already justified in Jesus, you don't need to justify yourself. We miss justification all the time. We do not get the fact that a holy God has completely made you perfect in Him. So you don't need to just clamor and dig and scrape to try and prove it to the world. Let go. That's the gospel, right? But the more we continue, listen to me, church, the more that we live in this, well, I, I'm gonna do the Jesus thing and I do believe he's justified me, but I'm also gonna live this life where I, I, I functionally try and prove it to people as well. If you do that, man, you're just pushing into and, and, and emphasizing this false gospel that the world already believes. That if you're good enough, you get to go. Now, the beauty of the gospel is that none of you and myself included are good enough the beauty of the gospel is that you cannot justify yourself you cannot do enough good it's just jesus so it's jesus and nothing right there's a good book that came out some years ago jesus plus nothing equals everything it's a great equation jesus and nothing guys This is the gospel the church must live out if we expect the world to have some type of glimmer of hope. Because if we just keep doing the same thing and you show up here and I show up here just trying to prove that I'm good and I'm better and I'm taken care of, all you're doing is perpetuating a broken system. And this is something Paul was just hammering on. So we got to leave the Jesus and in order to save. The Jesus and good works minimizes the gospel. And there's one other Jesus and, and I think it's Jesus and sin is no big deal. Jesus and sin is no big deal. And so, okay, I'm all about Jesus, and so uh, he'll forgive me, so no big deal, right? Bonhoeffer called this cheap grace, right, a grace that doesn't cost you very much. It's like, I'll I'll do my my own thing because I know the blood of Christ has washed me. And so, man, I will just move into whatever I want. Licentious living, debauchery, drunkenness, sexual morality, etc., etc., anger, lust, all this stuff. And we say, you know what? No big deal. I don't have to deal with this. I don't have to trust Christ to, to sanctify me, deliver me from these things. I'll just continue to live in it because, man, my eternal thing is secure. Man, beware That type of thinking. I think that is a huge distortion of the gospel. Paul addresses it himself throughout the New Testament. Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? Absolutely not. So these two Jesus ands I find very pervasive in the church. And we need to just say no more. And by saying no more, you're not saying I'm going to work harder. You're saying it's just got to be you. And by you, I mean Jesus. It's just got to be you because, man, if, if I try and do these other things, they just don't seem to work. And all they do, again, is perpetuate a broken system to the world. And then I want to address a few cultural myths before we land here in the last couple verses. And we'll just hit these pretty quick. Cultural myths in our day. Individualism, right? And you, you are strong enough in and of yourself. We hammer this home here so I won't spend a lot of time on it. Man, that I, you are sufficient in a view, You're the center of the world. You're the center of the universe. Whatever you want is right, et cetera, et cetera. Man, it is a myth. It is a lie. It is destructive. You're not, and I'm not. God is. When you start thinking you're not interconnected with the people around you, and it's just you, man, you are just fooling yourself. And you know you're fooling yourself because you know when other people do stuff to you, you're devastated. But when you do stuff to other people, it doesn't matter because you're an individual. Man, it doesn't work that way. Okay. This leads to consumerism, right? It's this constant perpetual desire for more. Another myth that eventually you'll have enough that you'll be satisfied. And I'm not just talking about goods, right? You, you think you'll find the right relationship and that's going to take care of it. So you just go to the next gal and the next gal and the next gal and the next guy and the next guy and the next guy just chasing what's next to fill this and it's not going to work. It's a myth. It's a myth. Um, Nationalism, big myth, okay? I have nothing wrong with being patriotic. I love America. It's a great country, okay? We need to make it great again. I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) I really am kidding. Um, But we we have taken the United States of America and have equated it with the kingdom of God. And it's just not. It's just not. It's a myth. It, it's, a, it's a total myth. They are not equivalent. God, God, yes, does he love America? Surely. But he also loves Mexico. Right. He doesn't love us more, guys. And when you begin to say, like, we're better because we... No, 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 no. That's, that's natural, and that's not the gospel. Don't buy into that. Now, again, love America. It is a great country, okay? So don't, don't, like, come up and say, like, you hate America or something. The last one, prosperity and poverty gospel, okay? Both of these. Uh, oftentimes you hear the kind of this, this hatred on prosperity gospel and it's due, but I think there's a reality of there needs to be this equal disdain for a poverty gospel because neither of them are in Scripture. Prosperity gospel saying, like, yeah, God wants you to be wealthy, God wants uh, wants everything for you. He doesn't want any pain or harm to ever come to you. In fact, not, not only does he not want those things, man, I tell you, he wants you to have the biggest house with the most money and a private jet and six cars and all the best looking guys or gals that you want. I mean, God just wants the best for your life. God does want the best for your life, but I guarantee you it doesn't always look like that. Some of you might get that and praise God. You're supposed to give most of that away, though. Maybe not most. I don't know but be generous, but that's a whole nother freaking sermon. Sorry for saying freaking. Um, <laughs> man, this is just a strange sermon. Prosperity gospel is just, it's, it's false. It will cause you to chase after the things that will pull you from God. And you'll miss him. God does not promise that to you. He promises more of himself. And there is no greater riches in this world than more of God. Okay. Poverty gospel on the other end says, man, you have to be dirt poor. You can't have a place to live. You can't have a place to sleep. You need to be outside. You need to be broke because you're just constantly giving everything away 24-7. You have nothing for yourself, and that's not in there either. And you get these books, and they're written on both ends, you know, and they're just kind of bickering back and forth, and it's neither. The Bible doesn't advocate for either of those things. Okay. It advocates for stewardship. Whatever God gives you, that's from God. Listen, whatever you own, that's from God. So steward it well, okay? Use it for his glory. As you use it for his glory, you'll probably experience greater joy than you've ever believed, okay? These are some of the myths, and they're prevalent. And I bring them up because, listen, they're not just gonna fix themselves. Like, there is a tool that the Lord has created that the world would not be stuck in these false teachings, and it's called the church, and so we course correct, okay? We be that people for the world. Now here's the good news, okay? Because we got issues, the culture has, good, has issues. But let's leave in 15 and 16. It says this, To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So Paul, lastly, is going to land this and just contrasts those who are pure, those who are in Christ, and those who are not. And going back to the specific context of this thing, this Jewish law idea, he's saying a lot of times right? what he's dealing with here would be uh, like what you could eat and what's unclean foods or not, which is a big, big deal in Jewish law. Okay, And so he's saying like, listen, to to those who are in Christ, and eat whatever you want, it's not unclean for you. It's not a cliff. Also, you don't need to get circumcised, like, specifically. To those who are in Christ, you are set free from this. And here is why. And I already alluded to before, but it's not that the law has been discarded. It's not that they took— it's, Jesus did not show up, grab the law, tear it in half, and throw it into pieces. He didn't put it in the shredder. Jesus loves the law. Jesus fulfills the law perfectly because you can't and I can't. So the reason why, to the pure, to, the, to those in Christ, right, we can leave here today, man, just so rejoicing is because Christ fulfilled the law perfectly when you could not. And so as you trust in him, again, your justification is in Jesus and not in yourself. So you don't need to leave here in fear. You don't need to leave here scared. You don't need to leave here thinking, I need to do better, try harder. You need to leave here saying, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. I mean, like, if that is not something that comes out of your mouth every day, Christian, you're missing the gospel. Because he did it all because you could do none of it. For me, too. Okay? Jesus paid it all, right? We all know the song. A lot of us know the song. This is why we can come to the end of this realm. Okay, man, okay, there's this daunting task, Christ. You want us to course, you want us to fix culture. You want us to uh, preach the gospel to a lost culture. You want us to push against, to rebuke false teaching. Mean, I, I'm steeped in this stuff myself. Yeah, amen. Good. That means rejoice in Jesus and go preach that truth to the people around you. You don't preach, hey, this is the right way to do things because you're so good at it. You preach it because Jesus said. And because Jesus has delivered you from a a pursuit of trying to prove yourself to the world. Okay, so this is an all-hands-on-deck type of situation. And I don't mean just Redemption Church. I'm talking the church needs to just wake up. And we need to go to people. And we need to have hard conversations. And we need to watch out and beware those who would come in and try to distort the message, the only message that saves, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as we're going to come up here, we're going to sing. And listen, when we sing, you're worshiping the central figure of that story. I mean, you have this opportunity to pour out thanksgiving to the one who accomplished it all because you could not. That's why we still sing on the tail end. Like, that's why it's response, guys. And so I expect... Just a robust thanksgiving before the face of God this morning. Okay. Let me pray for us, and then we'll move into a time response. Jesus, we thank you for your grace, mercy, and your hope. God, we pray that as a church... God, that we would have eyes to see the mists and the brokenness around us. And that, God, because of the gospel, because you have set us free and we have nothing to fear, we have no reason to try and have to justify ourselves because you've already justified us. Because all that is true, God, and we can have hard conversations. We can be wrong. We can fall on our face. We can, God, just look silly and foolish before the world. But it does not matter because you've accomplished everything. I pray, I mean, for, for the Christians that have been Christians in here for just a long time, right? The, the ones that we get it, God, would you just expose how we don't? Because we're missing something in understanding the justification that you've imparted to us. God, I don't need to find it anywhere else. It's only found in you. I repent of my sin where I choose something that I think is better just wrong lord let's pray for all of us that you'd expose i pray for those who haven't been christians for a long time and, and maybe this is newer and just kind of the, the, the lord that you're just changing their hearts god i pray that you would just continue to go deeper and give them more confidence in what you've accomplished and then, lord i pray for any of those who are here today that are not yours yet that you draw them to yourself you'd show them what your sacrifice meant for them God, that they would not believe the false lies about the gospel, these false teachings, these false ideologies that says that they can just do it themselves, that if they're just good enough, if they try hard enough, if, if, if. But God, that today you would just show them you already accomplished everything already. God, would you save today? Would you bless us, Lord, as we respond to your name we pray? Amen. So now, as always, we just take a couple minutes to sit.